Welcome to Second in Command, brought to you by COO Alliance, where top-level COOs share the insights, tactics, and strategies that made them the chief behind the chief. And now, here's your host, Cameron Harold. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this edition of the Second in Command podcast, the chief behind the chief. Today's guest is Tony Capart, and Tony is the COO and co-founder of Contactually. And as many of you know, Contactually is a relationship marketing platform, a contact manager that helps professionals and companies generate more referrals and direct customers from their existing network. It's currently used by tens of thousands of realtors, small business owners, freelancers, and actually our company uses Contactually as well. Before starting Contactually, Tony worked as an investment analyst for Grassroots Business Fund, and prior to that, worked at Microsoft as a program manager. Tony, glad to have you on the show today. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah, oh, I'm really looking forward to, um, to learning more about the, uh, the role that you're playing and, and kind of how you got there and any of the lessons that you can share for us as well. So maybe give us a little bit of background as to how you um, kind of ended up where you are today. Sure. Well, I mean, you, you covered the, some of my high-level background already, and I, I came started my career in a little bit more of a technical role as a product manager at Microsoft, building and designing uh, features, uh, an ad center in Bing, a website that we're competing head-to-head with Google. Um, and then eventually found myself in DC, moved here with my girlfriend at the time, now wife, and wanted to start a potential company and met with a few different founders or folks who I thought would be just kicking ideas around together. And eventually I met my co-founders, V, and we realized two things right away. One, uh, we, we really got along well and complimented each other well. And two, uh, we were, uh, you know, we had a bunch of ideas that we were, that were buzzing around and we were just passionate about starting something. Um, and Contactually was born out of that initial energy and excitement. So, so yeah, that's kind of the very quick summary of, of kind of how we got together and how things took off. And what's interesting, I didn't actually know you were from DC, but that was where I actually first learned about Contactually. I was at an event there that one of my former clients was running. He runs a group called Cadre. Oh, uh, yeah. No Derek Coburn at all? Yeah, Derek. Derek's a customer. He's an affiliate partner. He, uh, my co-founder is part of Cadre. Yeah, very familiar okay. with Derek and his group. Yeah, that makes sense. because I was at an event there. Uh, so I was speaking at it probably four years ago, and it's funny, I was actually buzzing about some other company called Sweet Process, and the whole room started laughing. I'm like, what's so funny? And then all of a sudden, the CEO stands up, he goes, hi, I'm like, oh, and I started Sweet Process. I'm like, okay, this is kind of <laughs> small. But yeah. that, was, that was when I learned about, uh, about Contactually as well. Well, that's great. Yeah, it's funny. People obviously think of DC as, a, as the hub of government, which, which makes sense. Uh, but there's a, a burgeoning tech community and tech scene here from the AOL days in the 90s that was that was based in DC and now you know the bigger companies Living Social and uh, Opower and others and companies that can actually have grown here so it's uh, yeah it's an exciting time to be in DC for sure well and I don't even know if it's so much that we have tech hubs anymore as opposed to we just have businesses because if, if you're not leveraging technology right now you're kind of dead right yeah I, mean, I think the your point that it doesn't really matter all that much which city you're in, right? You can communicate with people wherever. There is really strong talent in most large cities. Um, so we haven't felt the strong need to move to a quote unquote tech hub like the Valley or even New York. Um, we've, we've been able to grow rapidly, find the right talent right here. So it's worked out. Yeah, I'm starting to see people, and, and I don't know if you're seeing the same, but are you seeing people bail out of the Bay Area because it's so hard to actually keep talent that the companies are even pulling out of that market and moving to other centers? 
You know, I, I, I've read those articles and stories. All of my friends and peers who have built companies there have not moved. So I don't, I, that may be a little overhyped, I think. Um, I definitely, and, and for every person I have heard that has left the Valley because of the housing prices and, and uh, cost of living, I've got two friends who are moving there. So <laughs> I don't know. I, I, think, I think there's something about the Bay Area that is really attractive to a lot of people, myself included to some degree, um, that I think will, is not going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, I agreed for sure. It's, it's there for sure. So how did you guys um, start Contactually and, and what are the two roles, I guess, that you play and then your co-founder who plays in the CEO role play? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I'll give you a little bit of story on how we got, to, to, got together. It was really just random. We had not worked together before. We'd, we weren't friends before. I literally met Zvi through a cold email through um, Quora, Quora, the Q&A site. Sure. Uh, he uh, had posted about some DC Tech uh, events, and I was just getting plugged into the DC Tech community and uh, reached out and grabbed coffee. So that's how we got connected. And in terms of Contactually, um, as I mentioned, Z and I were sort of had a couple ideas. I think like a lot of folks, you kind of have your little notebook of ideas that you're always brewing and thinking about. And one of the ideas that he had originally thought about was he, he was an independent freelancer building websites and apps for folks. And his thought was, you know, I, I know I should use something to kind of organize uh, my like potential clients and current clients, some sort of CRM system. But whenever he tried to use something like a salesforce.com or others, um, just found it to be really uh, overburdensome for himself. And um, that was like the initial nugget of an idea. Is like, could you build a simple CRM, which there are many of, by the way, and could you really do something that was be connected to your email such that whenever, um, you know, you, you messaged a client, all that information would just be in the quote unquote CRM automatically. So that was like the initial nugget of an idea and that eventually morphed over time into, well, why do people even uh, need to have a CRM? Like what's, what's, what's the real root? Like why, did, why does V want a CRM? And the answers we started to get from people when we were digging into that problem or that, or that question was, well, the reason I want CRM, the reason I want to put people in the CRM is so I have all this information about them and I actually remember to do something with them. I remember right. to follow up with them, remember to build. And so that was, we kept hearing that as I, people are slipping through the cracks. And so we thought, well, maybe we could solve that problem, not by necessarily building a better CRM, um, but by building a product that would help you nurture the relationships you already have in a much more effective and personal way. And that's what became Contactually. Almost like a more of a reminder system than a, than a sit down and keep taking notes kind of system, right? Yeah, we, 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 I mean, that's really about what's, what's the messaging to describe. We hesitated for a long time to call ourselves a CRM. We called ourselves a virtual assistant. We called ourselves a, a marketing, pl a, a, a relationship marketing platform. Um, so I think totally, yeah, very much so in a, a reminder system is at, at its simplest what we are. Today, we call ourselves an intelligent CRM. And that's really, you know, we, we think we're the next evolution of what a CRM should be. It's not just a database that you have to take notes into. It's really a system that should be proactively doing things on your behalf in an increasingly intelligent and automated way. And that's what we do. Well, it's funny because I actually just told one of my clients yesterday who's been struggling for about a year with consultants, et cetera, to use Salesforce. And I just literally told them yesterday, abandon, walk away from the rest of your, I think it had 10 more months in their three-year term. I said, walk from it, put Contactually in place. And I said, hire a couple more salespeople that either know how to use Contactually or have at least bought something on Amazon because it's simple enough they'll be able to figure it out. And I, I kind of love that about your model is that you've kept it simple enough that it is really easy to understand. It's not like Confusionsoft, right? Where people have to hire consultants to learn something or 
they spend $2 million integrating Salesforce when it's just, it's a contact manager. It's supposed to help you. It's not supposed to drive us crazy. Sure. I think, I think the, the key point, I mean, there are, uh, I haven't looked at the stat in a while, so it might be dated, but a couple of years ago, there were 400 CRMs in the world that you could wow. uh, purchase. There are, there are many of them. And uh, Salesforce is a great product. I don't, I don't, I, I wouldn't disparage the product. It's just, it's, it's unique. Um, it's great for certain types of companies and certain types of businesses. Um, Salesforce has not done particularly well in the professional services markets and in the real estate market in particular, mm. it, because it just had the, that market. And I, I can go into the nuances of it. That market has very different needs. Um, in particular, your, your typical realtor gets the majority of their business from their personal network, people that they know from referrals from past clients or from other realtors in other markets. Um, and a realtor is a, is a, is a contractor. It isn't an employee. So you, you know, there is no sales manager that's going to force a realtor to do right. something update reports much like you might do in a traditional sales organization. So, um, so that's where something like our product is actually kind of fits, fits, fits the bill, right? We're helping a realtor engage their network much more regularly, much more, uh, personally. And in doing so, they end up with a lot more referral business and they get more leads from, from, cold prospects or people that are maybe kicking the tires and buying a home. Well, uh, so it's just, just a different need, I think. Yeah, but I think you're focusing on the core need as well, which is most companies kind of miss that, that if you help the employees make more money, if you help the salespeople make more money, they're going to go through brick walls for you to help you build your company. And if we give them tools to help them make more money, they're going to do better in their job. But if we give them tools to manage them, to hold them accountable, to oversee them, then they don't feel the buy-in at all. Yeah, it's, it's funny. You think of your... I think the uh, the world of CRM came about because sales managers or VPs of sales needed a way to report on and drive activity from their teams, not a means of necessarily helping their teams be as effective as possible or make their jobs a little easier, but just to uh, manage them and, and drive reporting more effectively. And I think that's a little, it's a little backwards when you, when you think about it. Um, reporting is certainly important, but it, it shouldn't be the prime purpose that you're probably rolling out a CRM. Now, do you take that same kind of mentality into the business? Do you work with your employees on helping them be successful versus managing them and holding them accountable? Yeah, I think, well, so I'm, I'm a first time founder and uh, I think that was one of the learning lessons that I developed over the years was uh, I've got a, a different way of operating and working. And uh, I think a lot of first time founders or, you know, young managers go into thinking uh, the best way to get results is to to be prescriptive or to show or tell people how to do something. And I, I think you know, most people listening maybe laugh at it and say, you know, clearly that's not going to be a certainly, certainly not a way to motivate and probably not the way to best get results from the folks that are on your team. I think my, my management philosophy has evolved significantly since then. And today I try to surround myself with people who are smarter than me, much more talented and experienced in the specific functional area, which we've hired them into. And so my job isn't to prescribe what to do at all, but really, to maybe be a sounding board and help brainstorm as needed about, about a given problem, but really support them with the resources um, that they need to accomplish their jobs effectively. Um, and it's really more of a mentor and coach than anything else. So you surrounding yourself with people and, and learning from them. How, how many employees do you have now in your company today? There's about 70 people overall. Wow. That's it. That's amazing. You're so lean. That's great. How, yeah. how um, I, I would, yeah, I was going to guess it was a couple hundred. So, even at 70 though, like growing the business from, from zero to 70, it's been, as you said, you're a first time founder. Where did you learn how to scale and how to grow it? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, uh, well in, in the early days, um, I think what's nice about being a first time founder and building a product in an industry that you know nothing about, uh, is 
uh, we were just humble and ignorant to uh, the, the best, quote unquote, best way to do something. And so we would just go up to anybody who seemed like they knew what they were talking about, uh, either in the real estate in- industry or uh, knew something about a functional expertise, like a head of sales, head of marketing. And we would just talk to them about best practices. We would talk about our problems. And we were just an open book. And, and frankly, I found that people were really open and receptive to helping. Um, I've, I very rarely have I had people, um, you know, shut down a conversation like that or, or somehow be agitated by me asking those types of questions. But by being open in that way, I just felt like we, we learned a lot of the tactical skills that were necessary. You know, how do you hire for your first salesperson? How do you grow a customer success team, et cetera? And over time, I think my questions and where I needed to learn um, we started, I started to fill out the tactical experience and uh, needed to really hone and develop my people leadership skills. And then that was much more looking to mentors and external coaches that I've worked with over the years to help shape that. That's way more nuanced and not something that you can learn, I think, over a phone call, um, but sure. like, a, like a lifelong learning process. So tell us about that then. What, what kind of leadership skills have you been working on? And what, what insights have you had growing in your role as a COO? Sure. Well, man, this might be a good segue into how, how V and I differ and how our roles differ. Yeah. Um, my, uh, you know, so I'll answer how maybe our roles differ and, and then I'll relate, relate it to the, the growth Perfect. that I think I've been trying to drive. Perfect. Um, I think Zvi and I have a, have a unique CEO, COO relationship and that Zvi, as I shared earlier, he was a freelance developer. He's a, he's a strong technical founder, um, who is also a, a strong, um, people person, a strong people leader. And so uh, I think what he brings to the company is a lot around um, relationship building uh, externally in terms of uh, bringing in good talent, bringing in investors, working with our customers. Um, and he, he was in, and still is strong technically. Um, and so initially worked closely with our product engineering organizations. Whereas I, I think my biggest asset I bring to the table is I'm very process driven and very analytical. And so a lot of the, um, commercial elements of the team, you know, our sales, marketing, customer success, support, those were the elements that I initially drove on. Um, over time, those roles have shifted slightly and I, we can go back to that, but um, just given that, that core um, strength of mine around uh, analysis and, and being very good at problem solving, that's where I leaned in and, and drove the business, uh, drove improvements. And I think where, um, where I wasn't as experienced is on the software skills around, um, on, people leadership and um, helping to uh, drive. Uh, initially, it was around decision-making. I think my natural default was to drive via drive decisions via consensus versus mm-hmm. having to make the hard calls, and so I would delay on those. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as I mentioned a little earlier, I think my initial gut inclination was how do I, how do I prescribe things for my team versus how do I un, you know, break, break down problems together and really tee them up to be successful in solving problems versus, again, yep. prescribe. So those are some of the areas that I think, are, um, that I, I think I've largely addressed. And today, I think that my, my bigger growth areas are around um, empowering and motivating the teams um, and trying to make those tough decisions as quickly as I can and in making the right decisions given the data that I have, which just sounds abstract and nuanced and fluffy, but I think at this stage, that's kind of what my job is all about, is just making the tough calls as needed and trying to empower the teams. How many, how many direct reports do you have and how many does V have? Yeah, so uh, all of the, um, I mentioned a second ago that we've shifted our roles. Uh, Zvi today is exclusively externally focused and I'm exclusively internally focused. And with that split, there's been a lot of really good benefit to that. One of it is that all of the teams 
um, report to me. And as a result, the functional areas mesh really well together. So uh, my direct reports, there are six direct reports. Um, and they're the functional heads, so sales, marketing, customer success, um, support, HR, people. Um, and sorry, sorry, HHS slash people in finance. Um, so that, and that, and that, has, that has worked for us. I think um, we used to split it between product for support reporting to V and the commercial teams were reporting to me. Uh. And the, the, while that felt, okay, that worked for a while, where it started to fall apart was um, in that what we were building and what we were selling and marketing started to become separated. And huh. I don't think we were a joined go-to-market force. We were, uh, this is the product team and this is everybody else. And it was just not quite aligned. And people felt like they were, the, the, the company was split between two bosses. And wow. I think uh, we tried to, we fixed that about 18 months ago, two years ago. Um, and the company's much better off for it, for sure. It's interesting. Harvard wrote an article. Um, it was roughly about 15 years ago. It was called The Misunderstood Role of the COO. And they, they identified that there were seven distinct types of second-in-commands. Yeah, I read that same. It sounds like you guys are actually kind of coming to grips with what yours is now. And, and it'll probably change again in a few years, right? And I think that's what's really hard for people to understand is what, what is a second-in-command? What is a COO? And um, I think also a lot of times people get overtitled very quickly. I mean, your, your company is the right size and the right scope to actually have a COO title. But I was talking to someone the other day who's hoping to do 500,000 in revenue this year. And he mm -hmm. said, you know, I just hired a COO. I'm like, no, you didn't. You hired a project manager and you mm -hmm. gave him a really big title. And he goes, yeah, I just didn't care what titles he had. I'm like, well, it's going to affect you because he's going to start thinking he's a COO. Sure enough, that afternoon, the guy calls me back. He's like, dude, the guy wants to like take over strategy and take over planning. And I just need him to do stuff. I'm like, well, welcome to titles. How do you guys wrap your head around titles with people inside the organization? Uh, with the two, between the two of us, how we've thought about it or within no, the, rest the, rest, the, the rest of the company? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, well, I would say culturally we're a very egalitarian and flat organization and we've tried, um, meaning that, um, we want people to feel, you know, it's a flat and open office. Um, there's no, you know, separate spots and we want people to feel comfortable, you know, providing upward feedback and pushing back when they feel like we're not doing something that's appropriate. I, I share that because I think our titles reflect that. Um, we do, you know, there's no, there's Zvi and I are your CXOs, right? We're the C-level titles. All the rest of our functional leads, although all of them have more experience than us, are all VPs. And we've had, we've made the decision consciously to not have, you know, a senior VP or not have, and we've, we've tried to keep that flat. And there's, you know, the pros and cons to be doing that. We do have other, you know, director level folks who are, um, you know, report to those VPs and senior managers and managers. Um, I think, so that, that, that the high level, you know, thesis has been, again, keep things largely flat and don't focus too much on the title. Um, that said, with more junior roles uh, in the organization, we've tried to make, this isn't maybe exactly your question, but I think where we've gotten in trouble in the past is we've hired really smart people. They come into, into one role and then we find that they um, have interests beyond that role. And so we try to make up roles and titles based on their interests. And a lot of those times those didn't match with their skills. And I think we got into trouble years ago with that. Yeah. And unfortunately, ended up having to let go of good people because we put them in roles that they were not suited for. So, um, yeah, that's a, maybe a tangentially related question to your first one. But I think... No, it's interesting. Anyway, yeah, that's, a, that, that, that's how we think about it. 
is um, when you're recruiting, where are you finding talent right now? And are you, are you guys all in one office or do you have remote teams as well? Yeah, we've, um, well, let me, let me answer like the, I guess, location, then we can talk recruiting. Uh, we're primarily based in DC, as I said, there's about 50 of us here in DC. Um, we do have um, remote, we, do, we don't have another office, but we do have some remote people. So we've got a developer in Arizona, a developer in um, Portland, Oregon. Um, and we've got a support team is, our support team is based in the Philippines. So, um, so they, but they're also, there's not a, it isn't a Filipino office. They are all working from their homes in the Philippines. And that is, um, so I think we have a decently, very strong remote culture in that team and a pretty strong remote culture in engineering as a result because they've got a few folks remote and the other teams are all in DC. Um, as for recruiting, uh, you know, we've got a head of people as I shared um, and she's largely responsible for that effort. Um, and I think we've had a lot of success. Initially, we sourced people on AngelList uh, I think largely because people who are looking to join startups early stage are looking at AngelList and you could find a lot of really good generalists. Over time, uh, I think that's been less successful for us and um, we found had a, lot, had a lot of success just with LinkedIn paid ads and driving good inbound that way. Um, but I think the, the best source for probably the most difficult hires, um, like the senior executives are trying to bring on is a lot of the our own personal networks. And that's where I think contextually often comes into play is where we're nurturing our respective networks with people. Whenever I meet someone who is very talented, they go in a bucket and contextually and I make sure I stay in touch with that person. Even if I know I probably wanna, won't, we wouldn't you know, be able to hire them for two years, I'm still trying to nurture them for that event in the future. So Tony, tell me how, how do you and um, Zvi get aligned in terms of vision? How do you, uh, who, does he create vision and then you execute or do you both create the vision together? Yeah, I think it's one of those things that's probably more art than science, to tell you the truth. I think um, Zvi and I both have strong thoughts around what what we want for this company, what we what we perceive the need to be and we're trying to build. Ultimately, our objective has always been to build a company and build a product that helps people build these much stronger, authentic relationships um, across really any industry. It just so happens that we focus on a handful, including real estate initially. So uh, yeah, to answer your question, there's not any one no, it's not just V. It's not just me. We're kind of collaboratively doing that. I think you know we have regular one-on-ones a couple times a week, um, and as needed, uh, well, we have exec team offsites monthly, um, and then he and I also will meet up as needed when we feel like something is not quite right in focus, and we'll talk through um, a recent example of that. We've been focused on the real estate market, um, but historically we've sold to lots of individuals and small teams, and. Uh, we had a few inbound large brokerages coming our way who wanted to buy, you know, hundreds or thousands of licenses. And uh, we just saw that as like uh, a peripheral thing. We, we ultimately though made the call uh, a couple months ago, like three, four months ago that no, that we're going to primarily focus on seeing if we can move up market and sell to brokerages. And that's like a big strategic decision that had to be made. And he and I both were, you know, we, we're uh, grappling with how to, you know, pros and cons, how do we make that call? Ultimately, um, you know, Zvi, there, there, I think there needs to be one decision maker when it comes to internal operations. I, I do make those calls. So I think certainly I take Z's perspective and advice seriously. And, and uh, if he strongly disagreed, we wouldn't do it. Uh, but he, you know, he, we've agreed together that ultimately I'm making the call on these things. And that, that, you know, I think it takes a decent amount of humility on his part to be comfortable doing that. Um, but it's a, it's an arrangement that's worked well for us. How about different personality profiles? Are you guys, it sounds like you are different in terms of your styles as well. How have you adapted your communication with each other to, um, 
I guess, build trust and to leverage each other's styles. Um, can you unpack that question a little more for me? Yeah. So, so often um, there's different personality styles where, where often sure. entrepreneurs or the CEOs are very quick starts. They will, you know, um, fire ready aim, you know, they're often accused of shooting from the hip and making it up as yeah. they go, um, you know, very kind of entrepreneurial and often the second in command or the COO tends to be um, much more process systems. Maybe they'll ask more questions before they start things. Do you guys have that in terms of any style differences at all? Or are you similar? Yeah, you know, I, I would think if, if you asked our team, they would say we're very different. But now that I'm sort of thinking through on the fly here on what specifically were, makes us so different, I'm not so sure it's it's the dimensions you just talked about, right? The the you know someone who's entrepreneurial or she's from the hip or not, and someone who's more you know methodical or or um, careful. I think um, you know the the idea of being very uh, analytical and process driven. Uh, is not because V would self-admit and say that's just not his strength. And so I think as a result in how we problem solve, it's very different. Um, I think at the same time is V is very effusive and really warm um, and really great at driving, making people feel cared for and, and motivating in that way. Um, and people would say that they feel like I care about them, but I also am really direct and I'm, uh, I get to the point. And so I think in that, those are maybe the biggest, most obvious ways in which we are different. Um, I think we've been really fortunate in that even though we, you know, if you, if you were friends with us uh, outside of a professional setting, I think we, we uh, kind of act really differently. Um, when it comes to like the core values, I think of who we are as people and those values that we've tried to build into the company, uh, we're very, very similar in, in, in that regard. Like I think we, with this idea of being uh, kind of very, uh, pragmatic and egalitarian in how we build the company. Like we're very transparent. Everyone knows the financials. Um, anyone can talk to us about anything, but that those kind of values, I think of what, uh, that, that was critical, I think in hindsight to the success of the business that we happen to be very similar in that regard. And so our style differences, um, they kind of complement each other, uh, versus being destructive to each other, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I'd love to know a little bit about the open book management and also about the values. So tell me first about the core values for the company and how do you, how many do you have? What are they? If you know them off the top of your head, how do you guys live them? Um, you know, do you tie them into your recruiting at all? Yeah, we, so, um, yes, our, we initially, and again, being the, uh, like the analytical process guy, uh, the, the, the non-touchy-feely guy, I was like, values, why do we need to write down values? That feels like uh, something that you just a big corporate person would do. Um, and I think over time, what I came to realize is, well, especially as you grow more and more, um, the things that we just took for granted, uh, are things that we cared about and we expected others would care about, you can't really take for granted because uh, if you're not screening for it, you might bring in people who have very different values and that could derail the, the culture that we strive so hard to build. So, um, you know, our values uh, have evolved slightly over time, but there's a couple that, that, that stand out to me, the ones that I think maybe uh, that I particularly screen for or look for, or try to champion in the company. The idea of uh, taking ownership is something that we sort of one of our values. We want people to feel like well, everyone is an owner because they're all equity holders in the company. But beyond that, right? If you see something that's broken, fix it. D down to like, you know, if you see a dirty dish in the sink, clean it. Clean if it. you see marketing messaging that's messed up on the website, like let someone in marketing know so they can address it. If you see a bug, like report it to engineering. Like uh, this thing, they just this uh, idea that uh, you just want what's best for the company is something that we try to uh, uh, really. Em empower. Um, I mentioned transparency a second ago. Um, the idea 
I think, you know, I've given a lot of thought to this, to this value. It's not so much transparency for its own sake. Like, uh, and when I say transparency, like, again, we, people know how much cash is in the bank, you know, the revenue numbers we walk through it every month, uh, hiring, uh, when major deals come in through, we share the detail, like we share, uh, we close a, around a financing, like all the terms we like we share everything. And the, the thinking behind that I think is not so much that, uh, you know, I think everyone needs to know everything. It's more that I, I think the pragmatic part of me and with NFSV is if you, if you want people to feel ownership of things and you want people to make the best decisions in the company possible, you need to make sure that they have the, all the information at their fingertips and you need to trust them as adults to make the right decisions. And I think, uh, that's, that's where that comes from this idea of, of pragmatism. And, and I guess the, the, the third value for me, at least that stands out. And I think we have six and I won't go through all of them. Uh, the third one is, is be excellent with each other. I think, you know, you can be, uh, what I, the first two I think are clearly very professionally focused, but this last idea of being excellent with each other is that we want people to feel like contextually not only is a place where, uh, you know, they're going to do their best work and they're going to grow and they're going to learn a lot, but they're going to have a really great time doing it. And they'll make some of some really, hopefully some really close friendships here as well. Um, I think one of the, the phrase that people often use when they first join our company is that quote unquote, everyone's really nice here. And, uh, and I, I take a lot of pride in that. Like we have like a no assholes policy and we have let go of people who were brilliant, but we're assholes. Um, and I think that, uh, that's important. So I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling, but those are the, those are the three that I really care about personally. Awesome. No, this is great. You're covering it really well. Um, the with the open book management, you said you open the financials to all the employees. Yeah, we do. And how how do you actually train employees on understanding them? I've often heard that you know it's it's hard or they won't care, and I disagree. I think it's great, and they do care. But walk me through how you guys actually train them on that stuff. Yeah, so uh, I think there's two things. One, uh, I my brain thinks very. Um, I think in terms of drivers and levers. And so whenever I'm thinking about a decision in the company, I'm thinking about how do we move this lever, a lever meaning like a sales conversion or churn, like what are the things that we can do to move our major goals in the company around revenue growth? Um, and, and if those are the levers, I, I, I take a lot of uh, effort to think through those and to uh, put that into language, into, into slides that I could educate anyone I hope to try to educate everyone and anyone about. Um, so that's a little, uh, oh, maybe a, a little obtuse. Uh, every month, for example, um, we I do a, a teardown of like 10 slides uh, in about half an hour, walking through how the month went Great. and talking about, you know, these were our goals. This is how we hit the goals and the, the really nuances around why, why did we miss or hit this goal? And that's taking elements from the different commercial teams and product as well. Um, and I think that gives people a really holistic understanding of how I'm trying to manage and run the business, which a lot of those are financial levers. Um, so that's, that's, that's one. The other, we do lunch and learns across various disciplines in the team and in our, our VP of finance, Rob has done, uh, you know, much more detailed walkthroughs around, you know, how to read a balance sheet, how to read income statement, that kind of stuff. And so that I think helps people that that's even more detailed, but I think, uh, probably for most people, those like end of month updates, yeah. like quarterly kickoffs we do are probably the most helpful. Yeah. You start, you're kind of doing the whole, what does it all mean? Right. You're just explaining it to them so they get it, which is huge. Yeah, exactly. Um, so one of one of the books that I wrote recently was called meetings suck. And I, I wrote it cause people were complaining about meetings and saying they were terrible. And I said, well, it's not really that meetings suck. It's that we kind of suck at running them. We've never trained anybody on how to run meetings. 
Do you guys have any tips or any secrets on how you run effective meetings inside the organization? Uh, yeah, I don't know if I have <laughs> tips or super great insight. Uh, well, I, I can tell you I'm a believer in sort of the, I blank on the guy's name, but the same person who wrote uh, the five dysfunctions of a team, Death by Meeting. You're probably familiar yeah, with that book. Pat Lencioni, yeah. Yeah, so uh, I, the, his structure is one that I had not heard of that book until fairly recently, but his structure is one that we have naturally evolved to over time. And uh, for those who aren't familiar, the structure is largely four, is four elements of successful, well, maybe two big elements and then four types of meetings. I think the two elements are um, ensure that you have the right, a, a clear purpose, uh, like the right meaning for the right purpose. Um, and, uh, ensure that there is like meetings are interesting by making, ensuring that there is conflict in the meeting. And I think those are two principles that we try to bring to bear. So for that first point around making sure you have the right meaning for the right purpose, you know, uh, in, in that book, he recommends sort of four, I think it's four types of meetings, uh, daily standups where you quickly sync up every morning and talk through like the major, what everyone needs to know or the burning issues that are happening. A weekly like tactical meeting, we sit down for an hour and we review like these are the major goals or how are we tracking and it's very, very tactical stuff that we may need to adjust in according to the given month's goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, monthly strategic, strategic offsite, so a chance for the exec team to get away for a couple hours and talk through uh, you know, one or two major strategic issues. And then uh, quarterly um, retreats, retreat slash offsite. We are getting away for a couple of days and digging in through the even bigger, meatier, uh, strategic things. I'd say we don't, we, so we do the first three naturally we've evolved to, and, and that has worked well for us. I think to make sure we're getting that right level of fidelity in those meetings and, uh, people aren't feeling like we're missing the big strategic things in the month or in the, in the weekly conversations and vice versa. Uh, I think we haven't been great at doing a regular, uh, the longer offsites, we do a big retreat every year for the company and for the exec team. We haven't been doing those quite quarterly. Okay. Um, but that, that, that structure has worked well for us. Um, and the idea of conflict, you know, I'm trying to, uh, to that second point, I, I try hard in the, the, the author's point in that book is to, rather than just have people drone on and on about a topic, to try to uh, bring a topic up uh, and draw out where is the potential, where do people, where's the disagreements, where's the conflict, and so people actually truly debate the issues. Um, I mean, we, we try to hire smart people, as I said earlier, and so those smart people often have a lot of opinions about things, and I want to make sure people are getting those opinions out, while also knowing there ultimately is a, is a decision maker. That decision maker is clear. Oftentimes it may be me or, or one of the functional heads, and, uh, and once we feel like we have all this stuff on the table, we make the call. So I try to live by those principles. Yeah, and I think it's, it's similar to what you were talking about earlier, which is you want all the employees to point out things that they see. I think the good, healthy conflict is that they're arguing for the sake of the company, not arguing to be right and not right. in conflict to be right, more to be engaging in conflict to make sure that all the opinions are heard, all the counter arguments are heard, that the data is looked at so that the best decision can be made. And... Um, one of the things I've learned over the years is that we really have to give the quieter, more analytical, amiable people a little bit of a chance to talk because I think the dominant expressives almost are often kind of trample over top of them. We need to give them a bit of a chance to shine. Agreed. I think the one thing we're still trying to work on with respect to at least our executive meetings is um, you, you're bringing oftentimes, I'm clearly very experienced, but often people with big personalities and sometimes big egos in the room. And, and to your point, to making sure that everyone feels comfortable but putting out their opinions and putting out uh, things, even if it's uh, sometimes you're going to be cr- critical of uh, someone else's turf, right? Someone else's part of the business, sure. um, making sure people feel comfortable being, being vulnerable and sharing honestly and openly. 
Um, I think when we have done exec retreats, that's always been a focus where we do like a 360 ahead of time, people sharing feedback with each other. And, and it's been so awesome to see like how, how candid and how seriously people take that type of feedback and how much better our meetings are as a result when, when that kind of gets diffused. Um, yeah. It's been really nice. No, it's huge. It's, and, it, and it does start to build, I think, each meeting that you have and each um, kind of each day and quarter that goes by, the employees learn to trust that it's all okay to do that as well. So if you're creating that good environment, even if you create kind of the no blame environment, it helps as well. Agreed. So can you um, leave us with one kind of parting tip then for second in commands that are either starting in their career or, or even, even doing well in their career today as a second in command? What advice would you give to them? Kind of the one big lesson that you always carry with you? Oh man. Uh, I, you know, I think that it, uh, Zadie and I've worked together now for six and a half years. We've been building this company, which is crazy to say it's a long time. <laughs> uh, I think that our, to you, you made this point earlier in our conversation that, you know, the relationship between the CEO and COO or co-founders in general sort of shift over time. Um, as our skills and interests change, as the company evolves, and that's certainly been true with us. So I think if there's, if there's one takeaway from my experience you know, as a COO here, um, it's that it's to, to be as explicit as possible about what that delineation between our responsibilities are mm. and to, to regularly, not, not like monthly or something, but at, to, to revisit it at points. Um, I think when Zvi and I have had the most conflict it's when we felt like we were stepping on each other's toes and we didn't have clear delineation in our roles. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so I think having that dialogue was really helpful. Um, and, and maybe in, that's often maybe hard to do with just he and I. And I think we were fortunate to identify a really strong uh, and, and helpful mentor and advisor. Uh, Patrick has been really critical for us, you know, help, helping us come to those decisions when maybe we wouldn't have come as readily to it ourselves. So, those are like, those are like the, the one, two punch of a related point. That's awesome. No, it's great. Tony, thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing your experience with, um, with all of our listeners. I really appreciate all the time and thank you for um, bearing with me when in the middle of our, our talk today, my kids were calling from an airport connection as well. So thanks for all the time and all the insights you gave us. Of course, anytime. And thanks so much for having me. All right, man. Take care. Good luck and have fun with all your growth too. You too. Thanks. Bye. Take care. You've been listening to Second in Command with Cameron Harold. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to subscribe. To learn more best practices from industry-leading COOs, please visit COOalliance.com.